0: Thank you, Jerry. I trust this is on i 'm going to give a couple of introductory comments and then move to prayer after setting a little stage. Um, yes, I may be a doctor, but if you fall out or have a cut or something don 't expect me to help i 'm not that kind of doctor. okay <laughs> I'll Just make that really, really clear. Um, that was also really clear to me too when, when Jerry announced this and he said, "This is going to be like basic seminary level, and I thought, oh my goodness, and I went back and started changing everything and <laughs> So tonight, we're going to try to look at what the whole Bible says about Revelation. And the more I studied this topic and thought about it in preparation, the more I realized what Jerry said is true. We need to be thoughtful about the methods God uses to reveal himself to us. Because when we are, we we will have a much richer understanding and ability to enjoy and practice our lives according to that revelation. And as Jerry alluded to, we're to never study theology for its own sake. And this is the best topic to start with, because when we talk about revelation, we're talking about God revealing himself to us. The point is God and knowing him. So um, let's jump in, and if we can have the next slide, I want to give you a little road map. I think that can be helpful sometimes you, to know where we're going and, and what we're going to cover tonight. First, I'm going to talk about what revelation is, and then we'll categorize revelation into two main things, general revelation and specific revelation, and I'm not going to cover all the subcategories here. You can't possibly do that in 45 minutes. We're going to talk about the physical world, the creation. We're going to talk about human nature and the conscience. For specific revelation, we'll talk about miracles. Miracles the Incarnation of Christ, and Scripture. And in, under Scripture, we'll have a couple of subheadings. What I'm going to do tonight is probably going to be a little different than what some of the other teachers will do, in that uh, I come from a science background, and so I was highly motivated to spend a little extra time on general revelation, assuming that you probably haven't heard maybe some of the thoughts I'm going to share, or at least just thought about the thoughts I'm going to share that that heavily. And knowing that we're in a church where you're getting a lot of great teaching on who Christ is and and the importance of the scriptures. So what I want to do is focus a a good bit on this general revelation piece and then start taking some lines and, and showing the connections between God's general revelation and the things I'm going to talk about with specific revelation. So first, I think it's really important to talk about what revelation actually is. One of the Greek words in the New Testament for revelation literally means an unveiling, a disclosure. And it's important that we think about it in those terms. Uh, Romans 16, next slide please, uh, 25 to 26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation or unveiling of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. So it's really clear. When God reveals something, it's not us that's creating new knowledge. He's the one who has it all, and he's giving us a peek into something that he has done. He is unveiling something. Uh, Darren's sitting on the the front row here. So Darren's an artist. So this could be a great... Now, if Darren paints something, it's probably Valerie, right? But just imagine that he has this great... uh, picture of a landscape or something like that and he invites me into his home and he's got a a sheet over this thing and he says Vance look at this and he pulls it back like this and in front of me I see this amazing thing that just blows my mind now it would be a little strange if I then said isn't it amazing that I was able to comprehend this painting Darren I mean how do you think he'd feel you know if if I was talked about how wonderful it was that I was able to critique and enjoy and discern what he was doing in this painting and if that was my focus. Well, he was the one who did it. He was the one who unveiled it. So my focus should be, wow, Darren, you (laughs) let me get a peek into that. What you did was amazing. So we need to think about that in terms of Revelation. And uh, I want to use just a simple sentence um, in the next slide. Revelation... Um, is there we go? It's a, it's an an act. Okay, so we need we need to think about that. It's something that God does. God is not a passive God. It takes an act for Him to reveal Himself to us. Okay, it doesn't happen automatically, and we don't take it in by osmosis automatically either. But the point is that God must do something in order to reveal to us. And it may seem fairly self-evident, but we need to think about things like that. Second, it's an act of God, okay? God is eternally happy in the Godhead, in the triune Godhead, and has been from eternity past, okay? And he doesn't need us in the sense that we complete him in any way. And he doesn't have a need to reveal himself to us Like we do sometimes when we just got something and we just need to tell somebody just because we have a a hard time keeping it in. Yet, God of his own initiative chooses to reveal himself to us. And when we think of it that way, that the revelation is an act of a God who didn't have to reveal himself, we should respond with gratefulness and and amazement at at that very fact. And finally, I just want to complete the sentence, uh, The Revelation is an act of God alone. Yes, God uses means to reveal himself. He uses men, for instance, to write his holy scripture. But the point is that we don't create new knowledge, only God does that. We cannot attain to a true knowledge of God on our own. Revelation is God's purview. It's something that, that he does, and we can't, Force it to happen. We try to do this all the time, though, in our society. We have all these different false ways that we think we can attain to true knowledge and we can attain to the knowledge of God. Some people think that they can do it through science. And as a scientist, I'll tell you, you can't use the methods of science to attain a true knowledge of God. People like that would call themselves empiricists. You know, they they go for empirical knowledge and they think that's the highest form. Other people try to rely on their reason. They think that by pure logic they can contain, attain to a true knowledge of God. We would call that rationalism. But that doesn't work in and of itself. God is the only one that can uh, reveal himself to, our, our, um, to us. We can also not attain a knowledge of God by trying to connect to the spiritual world somehow. This is also pretty prevalent, You know, to be spiritual or connect to the spiritual world somehow. We'd call that spiritualism. That doesn't work either uh, in and of itself. And, and this knowledge that, that, that we cannot attain to a true knowledge of God on our own and that we do not create new knowledge changes the way that we approach God. So again, Darren unveils this painting to me. I don't focus on the fact that I've discovered something as a scientist, I can get really into, oh, look what I discovered, look what I discovered. But really it was God, with an act of his, unveiling something to me. And this has a really important implication that Revelation is an act of God alone. God, not me, gets to decide how he's going to reveal himself to me. And that sounds really simple, but that is actually very, very important. The Pharisees were a perfect example of this, were they not? Uh, Jesus said, you search the scriptures... Because you think that in them you may have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So they kind of had part of it right. They were going to God's scripture, his specific revelation. But they weren't listening to what the scripture had to say about the Messiah who was coming. And they couldn't accept it. They wanted to do it their own way. God is the one who gets to decide how he reveals himself to us. He decided to reveal himself through the Old Testament writings and then by incarnating uh, into the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So as we read the Bible, as we attend a systematic theology class like this, we need to have a prayerful and submissive attitude to God. And in that light, I want to pray before we go any farther. So Lord... uh, Tonight we realize and and admit that we cannot attain a knowledge of you on our own. And we must come to you to understand you and gain a true knowledge of you uh, in the way that you prescribe. So I pray that as we talk about the methods and the ways that that you reveal yourself to us, give give us a submissive heart. Give us ears to hear. Make us receptive to all aspects of the way that you want to speak to us, and I just pray that you would help me to do that in an accurate way so that I don't misrep- misrepresent you in any way, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, so let's jump into general revelation. If we could add the next slide, please, Mark. This is such an excellent text to explain general revelation. Romans 8, verses 18 to 20. excuse. It is plain to them it has been shown to him, uh, shown to them his eternal power, his divine nature, clearly perceived. we're without excuse. If we could have the next slide please, I just want to talk about some aspects of general revelation that we can deduce from this. When theologians talk about general revelation, they talk about general revelation being non-selective. That means that God's general revelation, for instance, his creation that's being talked about in Romans chapter 1, is equally available to all people, everywhere, all the time. Such that we're without excuse if we don't recognize these attributes of God simply by looking at his creation. Also, um, that leads us to the next logical point, which is that God's revelation is sufficient. It's so sufficient to show us God that then we become morally accountable to what we have seen. But even though it's sufficient, it's still only partial. General revelation, looking at the natural world around us, for instance, doesn't show us everything that we need to know about God. That's why we have specific revelation. And it's also non-redemptive. You know, Just by looking at the general revelation itself doesn't mean that that can lead us to a saving knowledge of God. Now, we might be tempted to, at this point, say, well, if if, if, if examining the physical world, you know, and, and focusing on that part of God's revelation can't lead me to a saving knowledge of God, well, I throw up my hands, you know. I'd, I'd rather focus on the specific revelation part only. But I think that there's a problem with that, and that is that Hebrews 11.6 says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder. A couple of things we must believe. And God's general revelation is intended to increase our faith that he exists, that he is a God who is there. And so we as Christians do need to ponder God's revelation. We need to have our faith strengthened. We need to take the, the clues that He's given from the physical world to understand things about Him. Again, God gets to decide how He reveals Himself to us, and He's decided that, that general revelation is important. Let's just list a couple of things that we've already learned just from Romans one and then thinking logically about this revelation. Number one, we we know from the creation that God exists. Second, the scripture tells us that we know from that that he has an eternal nature because Romans chapter 1 speaks of his eternal power. Okay, He existed before the creation. Therefore, he, he is eternal. He's not bound by time. Second, um, the third, um, God is powerful. And I believe we have uh, yeah, that slide up there. God is powerful, his eternal power. We We can see the grandeur and bigness of the universe. And nothing like nothing expresses the power of God in, in, in that kind of way. We also see God's divinity, his divine power. Maybe we can break divinity down a little bit. We know that God is distinct from his creation. If he created it, he is not part of his creation. He is distinct from it. It arose out of him. He is not his creation. Unlike the pantheists would would lead us to believe. And that logically, not only is he distinct from creation, but he is higher than creation because it came from him. It came from his mind and arose from his spoken word when he spoke everything into existence. So God is transcendent. So he's distinct and transcendent, and that's part of what his divinity means. Uh, Psalm 113, 4-6. I love this way of describing uh, his transcendence. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. I love that uh, description. He looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He is so high he has to look a long way just to see the atmosphere <laughs> you know, around the earth. God is a transcendent divine God. And he's also glorious. The Bible tells us this all the time. Psalm 19.1. This is probably a scripture that, that so, many, many of us know. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament in the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The sky is shouting, God is glorious. He is glorious. He is glorious constantly to us. We, we can discern all of these things no matter who we are where we are, or when we live. And and the, and the point I want to make is, you know, you're thinking, okay, you're getting into this pretty deep. You're taking some pretty concepts and you're thinking really deep about them. But I would actually say, no, these are just natural thoughts that we should have from looking at the creation. They're just things that we see about God and then we just logically deduce from them that, okay, he's divine and he's above the creation. And these are natural thoughts that we have. But the problem is that, like Romans 1 says, we have this tendency because of sin, we know all these things deep down, but we suppress them. We suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. We already know these things. And the reason we have a hard time thinking about them a lot is just because of the, the sin around us and in us, and, and, and we tend to suppress it. If we want to look at the the next slide... The thing is, God wants to reveal his multifaceted nature to us through the creation. He has many facets and attributes. Jeremiah 33, 2 and 3, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known Great and hidden things that you have not known. You see the unveiling there again. God wants to show himself to us. But he starts there. I am the Lord God who made the earth. The Lord who formed it and established it. God wants us to know this. That it gives a weight. In a sense. To to everything that he is then going to um, share with us further. I want to convey that... um, God's revelation to us through the creation is very important for us to grasp, particularly in our day. We live in a day, and maybe I come up against this as a scientist, someone who's in the scientific field more, but we live in a world that's really dominated by the philosophy of naturalism. Naturalism says that the physical universe is all there is. That's it. There's nothing out of science, outside of it. There is no divine. Now, many people would not think of it so specifically, but they have a, a, a practical theology of practical naturalism, which says, well, maybe God could exist. But if he does, he has nothing to do with of relevance to the physical world. There's this, there's this divide here. We've got the physical world. This is fact and reality, what we can see, the empirical. And then we've got the spiritual over here, which probably doesn't exist, but even if it does, it's not real in the way the physical world is real. And from a scientific standpoint, I mean, so I mean, the dominant view where I work is, yeah, God may exist, but science can have nothing to say about it. That would be scientific materialism. Um, or scientific naturalism. Basically, science is restricted to a form of inquiry that can only look at natural causes. There can only be natural causes for natural things. And so the arrow can't point outside the box. You know, you've got a box here, the arrow can't point outside to something outside of it, it has to point in. And that, th- this is the dominant philosophy. I just want to give you a couple of quotes uh, of scientists who are naturalists. Um, To drive home how important this is in our society right now, Francis Crick of Watson and Crick, who discovered the helical structure of DNA, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. So keep that in mind, interpret according to this rule. It was not designed. Uh, Famous geneticist, Richard Lewontin, it's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world. But on the contrary, we're forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to produce material explanations. No matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated, moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Is this not an explanation of Romans chapter 1? Suppress the truth and unrighteousness? These are the most respected scientists of our, of our generation, of the, of the, the past century. Um, Edward Wilson, he's a, he's, a, he's a famous evolutionary biologist. Morality, or more strictly our belief in morality, is merely an apt- adaptation put in place to further our reproductive ends. Hence, the basis of ethics does not lie in God's will. Ethics, as we understand it, is an illusion fobbed off on us by our genes to get us to cooperate. You see where this goes? Now, you, you may not be a scientific naturalist, and you're probably not going to run into one on the street that thinks this concretely about it. But we need to recognize that this is the prevailing view in our culture that from our educational institutions on down, and we need to take our own temperature about how we view the creation. The world has a subtle way of conditioning our thinking, and we need to be challenged to, to ask ourselves, are we a little less in all of our creator's handiwork and what we see in creation than perhaps we used to be or perhaps we ought to be? When was the time you last looked at a cloud or uh, a blade of that St. Augustine grass out there or a bougainvillea flower over on that fence over there and just marveled at it and said, God... Thank you. This is incredible. You're ingenious, amazing. Um, let me. I, what I want to do next is I want to share uh, just an example from biology, something that the people like me would be familiar with. I'm a nerd, so I'm going to give you a nerdy example. Um, I want to talk about how DNA results in, in proteins, and this is this is just a. I want to give you a scientific example. This is not meant uh, to impress you with my knowledge or to, to impress you with the powers of science or something like that. I'm just a specialist who knows some particular things about my profession. But I think this can be really helpful because we kind of understand these things on a certain level. But when we get in a little deeper, it helps us to be more in awe. So don't try to understand every detail I'm going to give you. The point of this is that you just gain more awe and appreciation for God through, through, through just this simple example. So this is just a, a diagram of a cell, and this is a very simplified version of a cell. Cells are the basic building block of living things. Our bodies are made up of, of millions of cells, and they're uh, little cities unto themselves. They have tens of thousands of working parts. They have various compartments. They have transportation systems. They're amazing. When when Darwin came up with his theory of of, of evolution through natural selection, people didn't even know what cells were. They didn't have microscopes that were powerful enough. Look at what we know now about them. The the main uh, workers of the cell are proteins. We're familiar with proteins, right? But um, proteins are are really amazing things because they have these three-dimensional structures, these helixes and these flat places and these, these places where chemical reactions happen on them. And they do basically the work in the cell, they're the workers. Um, have you ever thought about how a protein is made? So not, not what it does, but just how you can make a protein so that you can then use the protein in the cell. So we're just, we're just getting back to something really basic that you have to have for life. We'll start with the DNA code. So DNA is found in the nucleus, which is kind of, you can kind of think of that as the middle of the cell. And it's like the library of the cell. Think of it as the inner information center, okay? It's got all the information needed in it. Every cell in your body, or at least the cells when your body was first starting to be made, and Chris is probably going to correct me on some of this, as I'm not a human biologist, but it contains all the information in that tiny nucleus necessary for everything that has to happen in your body. It's an incredible amount of information, but it can't do anything on its own. A library is not a machine, okay? It's just got the information in it. So it's in these big DNA molecules that are themselves made up of all these little tiny molecules. And um, the building blocks, we code them as A's, C's, T's, and G's. And so that's what makes the code. You know, we've cracked the human genome. We have that code. It's kind of like a parts list, okay? You can have a parts list for a Boeing 747, but that doesn't mean that you're able to put it together. So scientists right now, we have a lot of parts lists. We have the parts list for the human genome. We have the par- parts list for a strawberry, which is what I work on. And we use that. But we have to figure out what all this stuff does. So it doesn't do anything, but it codes for the proteins that do the work. Okay. But there's several things that happen to have to happen. Okay. So we have to have the DNA code. Then we have to have transcription. Okay? So imagine somebody that's in a library and they got the book open that tells them how to build a machine and they take a piece of paper and they look at that and they copy it down so they can take it outside of the library to where it needs to go to the factory to get that machine working. That's kind of what transcription is. All that DNA is in the nucleus. It has to travel somewhere. It has to get where it needs to, to, to go to make the protein. That's called messenger RNA. So several things have to happen, though, for this this to work. That tight DNA coil has to be unwound by a protein called a topoisomerase so that the the strand is exposed. Then, um, because some parts of the DNA code for proteins and others do not, a special protein called an RNA polymerase is directed by other proteins called transcription factors to go to the right place and start basically transcribing that piece of the code. And after it's made, it's then directed by various means that I can't get into to go out of the nucleus to the right place. So that's just the transcription. Third, we have to have translation. So it's like we have to translate from one language to another. We have to translate from that DNA code to the protein code. And translation also involves a lot of things. You notice how I'm saying we need a lot of proteins to make proteins? Pretty interesting, huh? Think of translating the instructions... um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so so you you take you take this message written on a sheet of paper and and then you actually have to translate it into the parts of the machine you have to get from the paper to the parts so the RNA is fed through a huge protein machine that you can see there called a ribosome where the letters of the RNA code are replaced, uh, that code is translated into amino acid code. So you know about amino acids, right? You have to have them in your food. There's 20, 21 or so of them, and you have, we have to ingest the essential ones because we can't make them ourselves. Well, the reason we have to have amino acids in our diet is because they make proteins that does all the work in our body. So um, that long chain comes out, and then that protein begins to fold into its three-dimensional structures so that it can do work. But it's made of actually its own long chain of amino acids. So to get to a functional protein, I've described that we need DNA, RNA, amino acids, and five protein complexes, each with multiple protein subunits. I haven't mentioned how the RNA polymerase knows where to stop transcribing. I haven't mentioned how the mRNA is cut and spliced to process it after transcription. I haven't mentioned other forms of RNA that help to put the amino acids together. I haven't mentioned how proteins are packaged and moved throughout the cell. All I've done, I, I haven't mentioned to you how the proteins are degraded and disposed of when they get old. All I've showed you is what a few of the things that have to happen just to make one protein. Okay? I think that we can all agree that proteins are too complex to be formed all at once by chance. Okay? Um, let's just say we didn't need all this stuff, and we could just take the, enough amino acids to make the simplest protein, and if we threw them in a test tube, they could actually assemble themselves. Okay? Let's, let's assume that we didn't need any of this stuff I just talked about. to make. And we would have to assume that they would have to join with the right bonds in the right order and in the right orientations okay? to make the simplest protein that, that one can conceive of. If we were to do that, the chance that that protein would form and be functional is one in this number, which is 10 to the 125th power, Okay, to make the simplest protein. So we didn't happen all at once by chance, which basically leaves two options. Either it was created by a very, very intelligent designer, or it happened through a gradual process of step-by-step improvements in a process called random evolution. Okay now, I think you guys are smart enough to know that second option didn't happen, okay, but this is what most people believe, okay when I teach my kids, I make sure that I teach them about god's creation. Um, it's become a habit for us, and when we walk. Uh, down the sidewalk and take a walk together and I like to do that individually with my kids when I can. We just point at things and we talk about how God created. And it's become some such a habit that my 2-year-old I took her out on a walk one time and she just started pointing at stuff and said, "God, daddy, God made the house." And I'm like, "Well, yeah, kind of." <laughs> and "But look at that tree over there." You know, isn't that amazing? Obviously, they can't understand it, all this thing. But see, God just wants them to be in awe of what he's done. And that's what God wants us to do. You don't have to understand all this. God isn't requiring. And that's not the main thing God is pleased with you for, is that you understand everything about his creation. He only unveiled a little bit to us, right? He didn't unveil all of himself. But he wants us to glory in it. He wants us to wonder in it. So let's fight against the naturalism in our culture by... Examining the general revelation like God intends us to. So um, if we could have the next slide. So I'd like to add a couple of things to the list that, that we already put up. I think that it's, it's pretty evident to everyone in the world, everywhere, all the time, that God is ingenious. He's just ingenious. You know, you can't look at that example I g- just gave you and not think, what a mind. The mind of God is so big. And then God is wise. He took all that incredible knowledge that he has and he had the wisdom to, to form it in just the right way and the order human history the way he did. Psalm 147, 4 and 5 is so true. He determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. His understanding is just so beyond measure. And we haven't even gotten to specific revelation yet, okay? So, but i got just a couple minutes here. Now, I'm not going to cover human nature too much tonight, but essentially we are made in God's image. And the capacity that we have to do good in the world shows us a piece of that. Unfortunately, people misinterpret that and think that they either are gods or they're basically good. But it's the fact that we have the capacity for so much good and yet we are so sinful. It shows the sinfulness of sin. And God also gives us a conscience. Conscience is as to the soul like pain is as to the body. Our conscience shows us there is a moral law and that we don't meet it. And, and I can't go into a whole lot, but I would really recommend reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity because he just has a great description of the moral law in such practical terms and helps us understand how this is such evidence for the existence of God and his law. But I want to move on to specific revelation. And I want to talk about miracles, uh, incarnation, and scripture. Now, miracles is a great thing to talk about right after you've talked about creation. And there's a reason for that. Now, there's a lot of miracles in the Bible. Amazing miracles that deal with God's uh, general revelation. Parting the Red Sea. Making the sun stand still. And God does miracles today. I've experienced miraculous healings that have taken place. God did uh, miracles in the Bible to show us something of Himself, to show His power, to show His care for His people. God does miracles for the same reason today—to glorify Himself by showing His power, showing His care for His people. But sadly, you know, miracles are a big stumbling block in our culture today. It can be they can be a big stumbling block for Christians. I had a conversation with my cousin one time, and he was dealing with a crisis in faith because he was reading his Bible, which was, which was a great start, but he was looking at things in the Bible like water being turned into blood and an aisle and stuff like that. And he's thinking, I just don't relate to this. I don't see this kind of thing happening. I have such a hard time believing that this stuff could happen. Well, if we really grasp God, as the creator of the world, remember I said I was going to try to tie lines between the general revelation and the specific revelation. If we recognize the divine power of God and his ingenuity and the fact that he created all the natural laws, if we believe that God with a word, all the molecules, water molecules in the ocean appeared in an instant, don't we believe that he can part a little sea? You know, if we believe that God created gravitational forces and created the earth's rotation, don't we believe that he can stop the rotation of the earth to allow the sun to stand still? Piece of cake. Piece of cake. But if we don't really understand God's general revelation, if we don't really have a grasp or faith in it, it's going to be hard for us to understand miracles. This has an apologetics connection. Um, I read this in one of the books Steve gave me when we were preparing for the... um, Continuing the conversation class, but it was so good. You can just ask a person, do you, do you think it's possible that God could have created the universe? And a fairly reasonable, open person, just to have a conversation with you, will say, yeah, I guess it's possible. Well, do you then believe that it could be possible that God could do miracles? Well, most reasonable people, of course, will say, well, yeah. I mean, if God could create everything, he can do miracles. Well, then, it's not that much of a stretch to go on to the miracle of the resurrection and the, you know, and, and other things. There's, but there's a foundation that has to be laid of recognizing that the God is the creator of all. Now, I want to talk a little bit uh, about incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God incarnated. In Jesus Christ, fully God and yet fully man, the specific revelation of God in the incarnation entered his general revelation. Again, I'm trying to tie lines back. The transcendent God who is above and way beyond his his world, his general revelation entered it. Colossians 1, 15 to 16. He, Jesus, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him and all... all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus, the creator, entered his own creation. He must really love us that he would be willing to do something like that. You know, that's what I think when I think of that. And this is the beauty of of grasping the general revelation because we become more in awe of the specific revelation that God would do something like this. Um, remember that last verse I read from Psalm 113 about how the Lord is transcendent? I want to read that now. And then I want to read verses 7 to 9 that come after this. So, so let's read this. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens of the earth? What are the next verses? This transcendent God He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is the essence of the gospel, is it not? That this transcendent God, perfectly happy in himself from all eternity, who's far above us. What are we that he thinks about us? Yet he thinks about the poor and needy. And he actually came down to identify with us. He even died on a cross for us. This is incredible. You see the love of God through this, that he would do this for us. John Stott, um, who I I love his book, The Cross of Christ, certainly believed that the the cross was a revelation of God. He saw it as a revelation of God, what Christ was doing on the cross. And I just want to read you a quote. Chapter 8. Uh, the cross of Christ. When we look at the cross, we see the justice, love, wisdom, and power of God. It is not easy to decide which is the most luminously revealed. Whether the justice of God in judging sin, or the love of God in bearing the judgment in our place, or the wisdom of God in perfectly combining the two, or the power of God in saving those who believe. For the cross is equally an act Remember, revelation is an act of God and therefore a demonstration, God demonstrating himself to us of God's justice, love, wisdom, and power. The cross assures us that God is the reality within, behind, and beyond the universe. So you see how he's even tying the two together, the general and the specific revelation? God and the cross and Jesus Christ is showing himself to us in an amazing way. Finally, just a few comments on scripture. And I know we're coming up against uh, the end, and so i 'm going to be as efficient as possible second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen demonstrates this truth that scripture is God breathed all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Sometimes theologians refer to this concept as the inspiration of the Word or that the Word is inspired. Which is a fine term, but it's actually a little weak. I mean, LeBron James was played inspired basketball, you know, when they won the NBA championship, right? The word is God-breathed. It is breathed out by God himself. It comes from God. 2 Peter one twenty one, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along. By the Holy Spirit. And this is amazing in itself. You know, God didn't take the Old Testament and New Testament authors and possess their bodies somehow and force their pens to write. He didn't dictate to them what to write. He providentially arranged all the circumstances of their lives and everything, and spoke to them by the Holy Spirit so that they wrote their own words and their own writing styles. And yet they're the very Word of God breathed out, breathed out literally by God. This is just an incredible thing. From this, we deduce some logical things. God's word is truthful. But God's word isn't truthful just in the sense that it's the adjective, it's true because there's some other standard out there that conforms to. God's word is the standard of truth. That's why Jesus said in John 17, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth, not an adjective, but the noun. Your word is truth. Your word is reality. Reality. God's word is the standard of truth because it was breathed out by him. Those are, these are God's words. And the logical um, corollary to that is that God's word is inerrant. You hear that talked about in theology too. It doesn't err. And what we specifically mean when we say God's word is inerrant is that God's word, the Bible, in its original manuscripts, does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. God's word in the Bible Um, does not, in the original manuscripts, can affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Now, people will tell you, oh, there's errors in the Bible, there's errors in the Bible. All I would encourage you to do simply, and there's a lot more that can be said on this, is just ask them which one. The conversation will either get derailed and to another subject, or it will end very quickly, or possibly if that person is very open, they'll mention it, and you can go to the Bible, and usually you will find that in that passage there's a clear way to figure out why that's not really a problem. But God's word is an error. But what I really want to get to, and this is what has really convicted me just thinking about this, God's word is authoritative. If God's word is breathed out by him, and we really believe that, and it is the standard of truth, and if we really believe that, then there's only one logical conclusion. And I'm just going to quote Wayne Grudem almost verbatim. This must mean that to disbelieve, or disobey any word of scripture is to disobey, disbelieve or disobey God himself. To disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. That bring, will bring the fear of God on you. <laughs> it did me when I thought about that, okay? That's why Isaiah 66 two says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's why we tremble at God's word. Not because we're afraid of wrath as Christians or because God is angry with us all the time or he is like a bully. No, we have this healthy awe and fear because these are God's words and we tremble at them. In summary, I just want to remind us that That God took us took the initiative with us to disclose himself to us. And this is an amazing thing. And not only just in some simple ways, but even through the general revelation in many facets. We've seen that God is transcendent, and yet God is humble. God is eternally happy in Himself. God is to be feared. God does miracles. God gives Himself, gives us His very words. So as we go out this week, I think, I think that what the Lord would be pleased in from us is that we just glory in God, glory in sunsets, glory in looking at the human beings around you, glory in DNA, glory in the scriptures, and just, just glory in Jesus Christ, and, and glory in the fact that God would give all of these ways to us that we could, we could know him. With that, I'm sure my time is gone. So, Jerry, I'll turn it back to you.
1: you. I do have a couple of questions. One, you you ran that illustration with that big number. Okay. But you ran that illustration with that big number up there. But you started that. You prefaced that with if we had all the ingredients, so to speak, in a blender or in some other space at the same time, and they were, you know, the odds of them. But if we then factor in, how do you get all those ingredients without anything else all in the blender? Then what do you multiply that by? Probably another number that big, you right? Have amino acids, you know? Yeah. To begin with, which is a whole nother. You didn't factor Right, but yeah.
0: the scientists are very um, smart actually, and they realize that given infinite time, anything is statistically possible, right? So that's why the age. Of <laughs> actually,
1: Earth, no, that would that's illogical, isn't it?
0: But but given that's why the age of the Earth get, keeps getting
1: longer, longer and, and longer, longer and longer. Because the more
0: we understand about the natural world, the more scientists are okay, well we better back this up a, little, a couple more billion years. Right?
1: <laughs> yeah, but but if it's impossible then how long do you have to go before it becomes possible? It's <laughs> just kind of a, anyway, so real quick, <laughs> thank you, excellent job, yeah, yeah. <laughs> excellent job, thank you. Um, how many of you all grateful for the work that was put into that, amen? Okay, a couple of questions, just want to see what we're, what we're gleaning. Uh, somebody, simple definition, what is general revelation? Just simple definition, who wants to give me a simple definition and see if you're paying attention? What is general revelation? What do we mean by that, David? God's shown, God shown us himself through nature, the world around us. In other words, anybody can get it in general. You don't have to have a Bible. You just kind of grow up under a rock. These are things you can observe and see, right? General revelation. What, what do we mean when we say special or specific revelation? What's the difference? Who wants to jump into that one? Someone other than David. Excellent. God telling us about himself through word, which we call the scripture, right? The Bible. So God making himself known. It's recorded in the Bible. It's his acts and where he spoke, and then we have that recorded in scripture. So uh, the revelation of God, and ultimately, of course, the revelation of God in a person, Jesus Christ. So absolutely. Absolutely. Good. I'm grateful to God for the work you put into this, the benefit that we gain from it looking forward to each of these classes, and um, that was well put, well put together, easy to follow. Thank you, my friend. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we engage you in truth about you in this course, um, Lord, we are stirring ourselves to think more deeply about you. There are so many more things that could be said. Books have been written on even one or two of these lines. Entire volumes have been written, and more could be said on general revelation and the world around us and what it says about you. We are grateful to you, Lord, for how much of yourself is even revealed in general revelation. But more importantly, Lord, we are grateful to you because apart from specific revelation, we could not know the forgiveness of sins. That is one thing. We could know our sin. We could know that we've broken your law. We could know that we're guilty, but we could not know that you've made a way for us to come to know you and and through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for special revelation, for specific revelation, for making yourself known to us in Jesus Christ. We rejoice in that. Lord, we ask that you would make yourself known not only to each one here, but to those we are talking to about Christ this week and each week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for your commitment to being here and your time here this evening.